And welcome back to How It's Med and specifically MedTech Talks, the series where we talk with people who are leading uh, the, the formation of the future of health tech and healthcare. Today we have with us Dr. Sven Youngman, a man of many hats. He makes card games. He's also a doctor. He's, he also works with uh, health tech startups that deal with data. I'm not sure what else he does. He probably does a million other things that I don't know. But Sven, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, so that we can, you know, get started. Hi, people, and, uh, and hi, uh, so thanks so much for inviting me, and uh, I look forward to this. Uh, I'm Sven, I'm a medical doctor from Germany, uh, worked clinically for a couple of years, but realized during my studies already that I wouldn't grow old on the bedside because I felt uh, a lot of things are too inefficient and uh, we we, solve, we spend too much time solving problems that should be there in the first place. Um, so fast forward a couple of years now, I work mostly in tech, um, which, which uh, you know, it's called corporate venture building. So we work at the intersection between startups uh, and established corporations. You can talk more about that later if you like. Um, so I do everything from building new apps uh, to um, helping a, a retail pharmacy chain from Kuwait to um, to go online with their products uh, in a direct consumer healthcare concept. Uh, as you said, uh, I took a keen interest in gamification and how that can change medical education. So the first thing is an Offline card game, things don't always have to be digital, I think. Um, but there's more to come, um, including some digital things. Uh, and the thing I'm, I'm most passionate about at the moment is um, together with some Russian engineers, uh, we're building a device that um, uses lasers to detect what's going on in your breath and to find biomarkers, quantify them, and then uh, help um, identify diseases from cancer to COVID, et cetera. So that's, that's what's currently under development. So here's the most important question. Do you have more than 24 hours in a day? Because that sounds like <laughs> much, much too much for one human to do in, in the span of 24 hours every day. Yes. Uh, so there, there's a secret to it. And one is uh, working together with uh, really smart people who are highly self-driven mm -hmm. uh, and who have very different competencies, but are able to interface with people who have yet again different uh, skills. Uh, so that's how you can leverage your own impact and... and um, create a stronger output together. Um, and the second thing is, I think there's always this mantra where people tell you, you know, stay focused on one thing and do that really well, and then life will be great. But it turns out, I think, especially in, in today's world, um, there's a lot to be said about transferable skills and of working at the intersection of things. So uh, surprisingly, something I learned while I'm creating this game teaches me a lot that I can bring in in another space where people are very surprised. Uh, but I only know because I just made this experience in a different field. And, and so you, 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 you end up repurposing every hour you spend because of the learnings you make, you know, that's fascinating. So <laughs> I, I think that, you know, what you pointed out there is really interesting because, um, you, you mentioned that working at the intersection of different fields is really applicable state. I've always been told that it's most important to focus on one thing, but you don't seem to, you don't seem to follow that convention. Where did that start? So it's, uh, well, first, I mean, I think this assumption is fallacious uh, for starters. So there's a cognitive answer to what you just said. Uh, and the second part is it's also personality type. So if somebody really likes, uh, I don't know, knee replacements, and that's the one thing they want to do in their lives, that's great. And we need these people and, and stick to it, but don't tell other people that they should be the way you operate, because that's not how other people's brains work necessarily. And uh, from a strategic point of view. So if you want to be truly excellent in the sense that nobody can uh, annoy you, kick you out of your career, you can, you can have like off-scale wealth because of it. And you know, you're the, you're the king. Um, you, you have two options. Either you try to be really good in one thing, but that means you have to be in the top 2% or something like that. But there are only so many top 2% of something, right? There's not too many LeBron James. There's not too many Bill Gateses and so on. Um, so you're quite limited there. And the second approach is, uh, also it gets really painful and often very boring because you end up sort of going deeper and deeper and deeper in, in the business world. People always talk about what is your marginal cost and your marginal gain. So, you know, your, your first ice cream, if it's hot, you might really enjoy it. The second one might still be great, but if somebody offers you 10 scoops of ice cream, you would probably be like, mate, you could give me money and I wouldn't eat it. Right. So, so the, the point is, um, if you want to get excellent, become excellent at something, you, yeah. it means you have to spend a lot of hours and the marginal gains, the, the returns on every extra hour spent on something where you're already deep into is necessarily going to decrease over time. But if you spend, let's say two or three hours, uh, learning or doing something activity X, and then the next hours you spend, I don't know, doing something else, which is 
maybe related or not, but um, it's also entertaining that you will bring in more energy, you will learn more and your learning curve will be steeper um, because there's just much more to explore. And that leads you to the second strategy, which is to try to be in the top 15 or top 20, but in two or, or more fields and you become the expert at combining these. So uh, a prominent guy who did that is the Dilbert cartoonist, right? He says, I'm not the funniest guy on earth. I'm not the best painter or anything, and also not the best business person, but knows enough about all of these three and is skilled enough in them to create really, really remarkable cartoons that get shared over and over again and tell a story that people can really relate to in the business world, right? So mm -hmm. he, he is an example of somebody who did that. And I once had a patient uh, who was a nuclear physicist, and he said to me, you know, everybody told me if I become the best in Germany uh, with sort of nuclear energy and all of it, nobody's ever gonna so I always have a beautiful life. And then suddenly... We had Fukushima and Merkel, our, our chancellor, decides we're going to exit Brutal. the energy right now. And he said, look, I'm 45. Uh, it's not like I'm just going to now switch becoming excellent at solar energy or something like that and compete against all the 24-year-olds who just did their masters in just that. So I'm out, right? And I, I'm not going to leave to another country because my family is here and so on. So he had a, like a strategic lock-in by over-focusing on this one thing, uh, which then turned out not to be so relevant anymore. And mm -hmm. if you have several things, then, then you can switch faster, right? So what I did for myself, you know, long story and the conclusion is sort of being at the intersection of understanding evidence-based healthcare, combined with business, combined with digital, uh, makes me one of the few in my country or in Europe, and therefore I get a lot of interest. But whenever I work with some people, I'm learning something that is important for these other people. And, and that's great. But it's also something that works for my personality and for how my brain works. So that I think that that's something... Yeah. Well, I can't generalize that recommendation, but I certainly think that people should be encouraged to go beyond this traditional way of you have to have this one career and you need to be excellent at this one thing. I think that, that that's a convincing case that you've made, but I want to hear your story. We talked a little bit offline previously about how when you were younger, um, you had an interest in special forces. So how did that, well, t tell us that story and how that led <laughs> you to a medical career. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I never wanted to study. I ended up uh, having, I don't know, four degrees or something like that. that, that's, um, that isn't that ironic? Yeah. Well, so that's, uh, here's, here's to, uh, reinventing oneself, right? I mean, and, uh, not sticking to, uh, fixed opinions, I suppose. Right. Um, I was, I loved the military because I felt you can really have a, a clear impact. Yeah. Uh, it's very palpable. It's very honest. Guns don't lie. And sort of, I, I like being outdoors and the adventure and so on and so on. I wanted, I wanted to join special forces. So before I committed to actually, it's, so it's, uh, it's 12 years in Germany. If you want to study and become an officer. It includes a couple of years of studying, but then you're basically, you're signed up until your thirties to be in the army. And the problem is that the selection for special forces happens after you studied, if, if, if you're, uh, if you want to study. Um, and so I thought, oh God, you know, then I'll, I'm buying the, the, sorry, buying the cat in the sack. So you don't really know what you're getting. Uh, and I never wanted to be in something other than this. So, uh, we have this option of doing a two year program where you become a reservist officer and I did it in the airborne infantry and the special operations division. Uh, so this was very close to SOF guys and it gave me a very good, uh, insight. And I loved it, uh, to be fair, there were a lot of things I hated, but that's the love-hate relationship that most soldiers tell you about, I think. Um, and I had a mentor who was a sniper, really spooky guy, probably nobody really wants to meet uh, him, but I, I sort of, I wanted to be like, admired him. And then this one day I had a book from, written by some samurai, uh, master and I wanted to sort of learn what it meant to be a warrior. So I looked at a lot of you know, the literature on, on being a warrior. And I, I read it, but I thought he was super stupid. You know, he was contradicting himself on every second page. And it was, I don't know, it was really silly. And I, I took notes with my 6B pencil in it and, and criticizing the heck out of this guy, right? So then my mentor comes, uh, walks past me and sees that I'm reading this book. And he said, oh, of course you are. You know, I've been meaning to read it for a long time. Do you mind if I borrow it? I said, oh, of course not. Here you go. He reads it, uh, and then he summons me one day and he says, oh, I've got your book. And I said, oh, thank you. And he said, no, 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 we need to talk. Come to my office. So, okay, what's going on now? So I, um, and he says, I've, I read your book. Thank you for this. I also read your notes and I came to the conclusion that you're smart, for, too smart for the army. So I also showed it to the lieutenant and he agreed with me. You know, I know you will love all of this. I know you will love, uh, blowing up doors and repelling down helicopters and all of that. 
uh, it's great, but uh, trust me, when you turn 30 something, uh, you will realize that this is all way to politicized and that you can't really use the skills you have fullest and you can't really have the impact that you, that you desire to have. This has become clear to me now, so I need to recommend to you to, uh, to do something else. I don't know what's out there. I don't know, go study or something. I've been here since I'm 17. I don't know the world outside. You have to find out. And it, it felt horrible because I, he was my idol. I wanted to be like him. He tells me not to become like him and has no alternative for me, but I knew it came from a very good place. So I did that. And then I thought, let's do medicine. Take six and a half years until you're done. So we have enough time to reflect. Special forces always need doctors. So there's, there's still a, a way back. Uh, and it's also honest. So a lot of the things that I liked about the military, you know, it's impact oriented. It's, it's sincere, you know, no bullshitting on PowerPoint slides, ability to see the world and, and see something that's, that feels real. That's, that's what, what drew me into medicine. But then you ended up taking a step later on after medicine into the startup field. And I, th I think a common notion that leads to that step is, uh, I guess, the, the person's opinions about scaling. So what was your first encounter with the notion of scaling? And did that spark your journey into the startup field? Yeah. So I, I think it's always important to reflect on, so what are your epiphany moments? You know, this one thing you're like, ah, okay, now, now there's a before and after and, and now I see things a little bit different. So I've been chewing on this and I've, I've, I kept seeing in the healthcare space, you know, it's, it reminded me so much of the military. A lot of things were a bit backward and how we, we, we go about treating people, how we organize the hospitals and we use old fashioned phones and, you know, it's the lagging behind kind of. And actually one of my professors made an, an analogy to the army, he said, um, you know, medicine is kind of like the military. It's always ready for the last war. The next war we do, if it's going to be in Antarctic, we're going to probably all show up in Desert Camo or something like that. Right? So that, that's what he said. And he said, it's pretty similar in medicine. You still have, I don't know if you had that, but I was asked in an exam to draw acetyl CoA, coenzyme A in the formula of it. Oh. And I thought, I, I don't actually get why I need to do that. Like which patient do you think is ever going to be safe from my knowledge of the formula of acetyl CoA, I don't, I don't know. So we have a lot of this, 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 this rubbish. That's one thing. Um, and then I, I also thought many of the things could be prevented. And I wasn't so clear about this at the time, but many of you probably know that 70% uh, of our health outcomes are probably determined by things that have nothing to do with the healthcare system, right? They're determined by your friendships, your work, your education, your nutrition, your lifestyle, the environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we, we don't really touch that. So we leave all the massive potential to, to make people happier. Instead, we throw a lot of meds at them. And I'm not against medication and anything, but I'm just saying like, um, I felt like we've, we're putting out fires that we could prevent from even burning in the first place. And that was incredibly frustrating. At the same time, I made friends with pharmaceutical engineer, uh, Andreas from, from Copenhagen. What he did was he was developing new snake antivenoms. In a really clever way, I think this is, you should probably interview him too. He's a great guy, but essentially 10% of the cost lasts much longer, doesn't, doesn't create any anaphylactic reactions. And it's, it's like, it's super easy to produce long, long shelf life, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know, after he created this, he could now go sailing for the rest of his life or do, I don't know, whatever silly stuff. He will always save more people than I ever could, no matter how many night shifts I do or how many, you know, weekend shifts or, or whatever I do. Jeez. And, and there's a, there's a guy who, um, who character, I mean, it, it sounds great as a doctor because it's so palpable, you know, you are with the people, so you feel it. But the, the problem I see is that, or somebody, somebody said, you have to think about counterfactual life years saved. So if you, Jeff, with your skills, uh, suddenly step out and you do something in the engineering space, or I don't know, become a multimillionaire and donates wisely or whatever. So if you take another parallel life as the same person or something else and the same motivation to really help people. What's the counterfactual life years that you could save? And somebody said, well, you're, you're probably as a doctor on average, you're helping six or seven people more than if you would be doing something else. But your chances of doing something that's much, much more influential, if you step out of the one-to-one -one patient care and do something scalable, sort of this, this potential is also much greater, right? Um, if, if you do it right. And so I think like, if as a doctor, you say, oh, I want to do this to help people, then you have to have this hard conversation with yourself. If you're really in the best place at the bedside doing this. And I, we know we need people who do it, but from an individual perspective, I think it's important to, um, to challenge if, if you're in the right space, if, if you really want to have an impact. That's really interesting. So did you take that attitude into your education? Uh, with like public health, public policy and business, or yeah. did you form that perspective as you gained that education? 
So that, uh, that was actually, uh, people I met in Oxford. Uh, there's this movement called effective altruists, which you can also criticize from a philosophical standpoint, but their, their core tenets is, if you want to simplify it, quite utilitarian. They say, okay, if you say you're in the game of helping people, you have a moral obligation of doing it in, in sort of in a way that you touch as many lives as possible and, or have the biggest impact as possible. Then just doing a little bit is not enough. Um, and, and that got me thinking a lot and it was very much in line with also, you know, when the guy at the military told me, uh, you will not be able to live up to your potential. That's not something that at that time I considered. I thought, but I want to kick in doors. You know, I want to jump out of airplanes with a night vision goggle on. That's what I want to do. And it's cool that I can have an impact. But this guy said, no, actually, there's going to be a delta between what you can achieve and, and what you will achieve. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to have that. So that's when I started to think about, I need to, to, to keep this delta small, right? And that's yeah. something that always followed me. So then, I mean, you, you ended up, I guess at Oxford as, as one of the schools or one of the, um, I guess, pieces of education that you ended up taking on, but you went back to medicine afterwards, what motivated mm. that decision and what motivated your decision afterwards to get out? Oh, nice. So that was 2013. Uh, and then I finished Oxford 2014. And at that time, I still felt that the best way to have a big impact with medical background, I thought at that time. Uh, would be going into public policy. So WHO or International Committee of the Red Cross or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I did my master thesis at the European Commission uh, in a health project on digital health, actually. And I loved it, but I also realized, same story, very politicized. You can't really, you know, phrase things in, in a clear way. So one example was that I, I wrote, it's good to, to drive digital health, but we have to be careful because you know, there might be people who are not able to, to use it and we don't want to disconnect them from the healthcare system. So we have to have different things in place. And then I added, without thinking about it, I added, this could especially affect people uh, who are maybe a bit older and not digitally native and people who live in rural areas. And that created quite an outrage because apparently I was stigmatizing people and they already saw complaints coming from some, I don't know, interest groups and so on. So we had to add like a big paragraph saying, oh, we don't mean to say that people living in rural areas are necessarily less digital uh, connected. On the contrary, there are very beautiful cases of towns that blah, blah, blah. And the same also for the old people who blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, okay, but we just watered it down so much that we end up saying nothing. So we just put ink on paper. That's it. And and that's how politics work. But I, I thought, or at least how public sector works. And I thought, okay, no, not for me. And then at the time, it was not like you have a million startups and it's not that long ago, really. It's like we're talking seven or eight years, right? Yeah. Uh, but you didn't have like a lot of startups saying, oh, we need a medical doctor working in digital uh, for this and this, which these days you find fairly often. So there has been a, a strong acceleration. But then I thought I, I need to take this kind of Hollywood approach. So if you want to be an actor, go where they are most likely to, to, to discover you. And, and that means maybe go to Hollywood, right? In my case, um, a bit more abstract, but uh, well, I decided to go to Berlin because I knew there's a big startup scene. Um, I decided to go to Helios, uh, which is a uh, Europe's largest private hospital provider. And they, they made their money by buying hospitals and optimizing them. But then there was no interesting hospital left to buy. So I thought they still need to grow. Hence, they will go to digital. So that, that was my second positioning strategy. And then I always wanted to be a surgeon, but I thought let's do uh, lung diseases. Because if you look at the WHO top 10 killers or the biggest drivers of the global burden of disease, then it's first and foremost internal medicine mostly, and secondly, uh, quite a quite a few of think two or three are respiratory diseases, COPD and lung cancer, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you have some cardiology, but that's also part of what you learn. So I thought this is where I have the biggest uh, synergies that I can harness if I go outside. Plus, uh, as evidenced by COVID, um, I thought if you, if you have an erogenous germ uh, that very quickly takes up a public policy uh, dimension too, which I was trained in. So I thought let's let's find something where I have the biggest the, the the biggest overlap. So it goes back to what we discussed earlier, you know, with the intersection of different skills. And I just felt it was really important, even though I knew I wouldn't grow old uh, on at the core phase of medicine. I thought it was very important to um, to get this practical experience, you know. And it's not just about the medical knowledge of how do you treat a heart attack or something. It's about truly understanding the dynamics between nurses, patients, therapists, doctors, and the relatives and the frustrations of, I don't know, having to make phone calls to get a patient to another hospital at night if yours is completely full. And 
you know, like all of that. And, and also to be honest, uh, it, it, you get your approach differently by your doctor colleagues. And a lot of what I do is interfacing with them, uh, when I, when we create something new and, and knowing, you know, what, what do they need? How, how do I complete them to try something new? Uh, how to make it safe for the patients and all of this, it, it, it requires deep understanding and also the ability to share war stories, quite frankly. Yeah. So it's the ability to like, uh, communicate in the same language to have the same experiences. Mm -hmm. But we, we've had a previous guest uh, on another one of our series who has continued to practice despite her involvement, her serious involvement in a, a rapidly growing uh, materials startup. So why not continue a part-time practice alongside? Yeah. So for me, I, I wasn't given the option. So what happened is that my employer, like I expected, uh, this, this hospital chain, their top management came up to me and said, look, uh, it's time we need to build something in the digital space. We've been trying some initiatives, but we realized we need to do a, we need to fully commit. So we're investing in a new company that we're going to set up and we would like you to be the chief medical officer. And, uh, my first reaction was, oh, great. So can I do that part-time next to, to my residency? And they said, well, no. Uh, we need you to be committed. We need you to be there full time. We, we don't have, I mean, we have too much work. And besides, actually, we don't want you to be too much in the system because it's just going to bias you. We, we're the largest hospital chain. We have 10,000 doctors or something like that. <laughs> I love you. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, they said if, if we need any experts, uh, any, I don't know, head of cardiology or whatever, we, we can get them. Right. Um, so it, it, it's not what we need from you. And indeed, I mean, it, it's not like you're plug and play as a doctor, right? So you, you yeah. end up in the startup and there are a lot of things that you don't understand from finance to like, how do you do a product? What is this whole lean stuff? And you can easily read it up, but it doesn't mean that you really understand what it means in practice, like, like same with the medical part. So you will actually, I think in many cases have to spend a considerable amount of time, uh, upskilling and, and unlearning, um, mm -hmm. somehow that's good. Again, like, I think it depends on who you are and, and what the role is. So I'm not saying that she's doing something that she shouldn't be doing. It probably works really well for her. In fact, I would argue that we will see a rise of different types of roles of digital doctors. Uh, so there will be the, the leader type of, uh, I, I've written a piece with some colleagues uh, about this, right? There's going to be the leader archetype, probably business leader, galvanizing people around an idea that is, that is medically sound. Sounds easy, but it's not. Uh, then there will be the builder people who, who create algorithms or who can build apps or whatever and have a medical background. There will be uh, the healer, which are people who are still in the clinic um, and, and at the same time probably have some digital skills because even, even regular patient care will increasingly need more data science and digital skills, etc. And there will be more, right? There might be somebody who's, who's an investor and really good at not investing in the next Theranos because they know how to make sense of things, right? But putting money in the right thing and so on. And, and there, are, there are a lot of ways of doing that. Part-time, full-time or a little advisory here and there. You're leaving me too many things to talk about. So I'll tackle <laughs> one. Um, first off, transitioning into the role of the CMO, um, just without any context as someone who was practicing as a resident, that must mm -hmm. have been confusing. You had to had, had learn a lot on the go. Are there any stories that you think best exemplify the, the, the whirlwind that must have happened then during that transition into serving as a CMO? I think there's several components. So one is also the emotional part of it. If you, if you, if you suddenly go on an untreaded path, uh, there's this component of not knowing how to walk that path, but there's also this component of people being very confused why you're leaving this path, right? So you have people telling you, but you went to medical school for six years and, and you owe it to society. Do you know how much it costs to study medicine? Uh, do you know how much it costs society, right? And yeah. question. Um, <laughs> or, uh, or they say, but you know, somebody else could have taken your medical, uh, study seat and, and now you're wasting it, uh, by going out. Um, some doctors, some colleagues that are really valued and, and actually we had another conversation recently and now it's all good. But for quite a while, um, there was one guy, he felt like I've been corrupted now, you know, like all the money bought you. To me, it seemed like I was going to take an education in Sith Lordship on Death Star or something like that. If, if, if I looked at, you know, how, um, how he perceived me then something like that. So, so you have, you have all of these things. And then you also have a lot of really well-meant advice where somebody says, oh, but you should finish your residency. Otherwise you're not a real doctor. Uh, and then you have nothing to go back to and so on. It's, it's all well-meant advice, but it comes from people who have only seen this world. So how are they able 
to, um, to give you proper advice. So, um, what I've done was then surround myself with a lot of people who are from the other side of, the, of this world. So people who work in startup or venture capitalists and, uh, and that, and, and just hearing how they think about things and how much also understanding how much they don't understand about this clinical part was very, very crucial, um, to understanding where my role would be and to stop adhering all the doubts sort of very one-sided from the clinical point of view, right? So I think that's, um, that's one thing. That sounds so, so emotionally difficult being able to navigate mm -hmm. all that uncertainty, all that feedback from people who wish well, but who are pushing back, back against what you do from, from the side of, you know, a, a, a community that you've worked with for so long, but mm -hmm. I guess, how did you resolve that, that conflict in terms of going to the other side? Because that's something that I've heard of here as well in Canada. I mean, similar to uh, Germany, there's uh, a very, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a very, uh, th there's a public sector um, of uh, version of mm -hmm. healthcare, um, and that mm -hmm. doesn't exactly line up with the startup -y world. So how did you, I guess, bridge that yeah. gap with those who voiced that concern? Yeah, so in, in the beginning, I think I went through several phases. In the beginning, I took them very seriously and I doubted myself. Then I started to realize, okay, it's just a different point of view, and I was very accepting of it. And then I reached a point where I was extremely frustrated by my medical colleagues. And one example is in, I assume it's similar in everywhere, but uh, even if you do a simple study with an app uh, that you want to test on patients. Uh, so in our case, we had this idea that if somebody gets the first diagnosis of cancer, knowing that they remember really, really little of this first conversation, because they're too stressed out. We wanted to give them an app that really gives them personalized information about their condition, what happens next, what they can do and so on and so on. So they don't have to go to Google and get confused and scared. Mm -hmm. uh, but this personalization would happen uh, thanks to the input that the doctor gives to, to, this, to this app. And it would be the oncologist that has been talking to the patient, right? So in my view, I was augmenting uh, the doctors and helping them to, to have better educated patients. Huh? Uh, and with that and all full confidence, I walked to the ethics committee hearing where I had to pre present the case and, and people were extremely aggressive towards me. There were like a series of doctors, part of this committee, and then one patient representative who was neutral. And so I said, oh, hello, good evening. They said, just sit down. Went, okay. So I thought, what's going on here? Like I was in court or something. Right? So I sit there and then they asked me a couple of questions and, and it's, it's, it's pretty intense in the tone and so on. And then after a while, I said, yeah, so what's, I'm sorry, what's going on here? And then one guy said, the psychiatrist, he says, okay, I mean, I don't want to take this too far, but since this is an ethics committee, I might as well tell you that I think it's highly unethical what you're doing there. I'm like, okay, so why is that? And he said, well, don't take us for stupid. We all know what's going on here. And I'm like, oh, can you help me? Because I'm not seeing it. And he said, well, you're trying to get rid of doctors. And I said, oh, uh, I think all of us in this room have treated cancer patients. And I think all of us know how stressed out they are. And all of us have read the studies, how much people actually remember from the very first conversation of breaking the bad news of somebody having cancer. And it's, it's at best, if they remember your gender as a doctor, that's already great. So also if you have read the application then you might've seen that we can only tailor it depending on the information we get from the doctors. So I don't see how I can make them redundant. And he said, oh yeah. I think you should just stop taking us for fools, right? And then I said, okay, listen, since we're talking frankly here, on my view, there are only two, two, two ways this can go. Either us doctors, we keep in our little world, in our little ivory tower, and we judge everybody who's trying to bring in innovation. But then what's going to happen is that, and I'm sorry for the American and Chinese listeners, but I had to play that card. I said, you will have all the big GAFAs from the US and you will all have all the big corporates from China with different legal and ethical and cultural systems, uh, developing technologies that will be so advanced that people here will demand them, but then we will have to play by their rules and we won't have it according to our own ethics and your committee will not mean anything to them. The other option is that instead of being so judgmental, we start to have active conversations with these innovators and we help them make sure that things are evidence-based and in line with what we think is good medical practice. But I'm telling you that the option that you're driving here right now is not going to have a very strong success. And, and so I'm here to make sure that we, with, we build bridges and that we create meaningful innovations together. So please help me with that.
the thing went through in the end of the day, but I thought, what is this conversation I'm having, right? And that's where I end up being very frustrated. So there, there, there has been a, a transition in my thinking too, right? Yeah. Jeez. That just hearing that story was like absolutely shocking hearing it, like being frankly spoken like that. And mm -hmm. I can't imagine how it must've felt to deal with that and to continue to deal with that day in and day out. It changed, you know, I think uh, I've learned my lessons and I've also seen, I have a good mentor in, uh, in Oxford is, uh, the name is Muir Gray. Uh, he's been knighted also for his services in the health system and so on. And I, I once wrote him a long email and I said, Hey Muir, I'm really frustrated and uh, this and this keeps happening and so on. A similar story to this. And, and he just answered me and he was his, his passion. So he's Scottish, right? And I don't even hear his accent, but I can't imitate him. He, he just goes like, great Sven, keep irritating. Full stop. And that, that was the message. Um, and, and his, his motto is always, it's better to irritate than to stimulate. Um, that, that's how he keeps driving change. And, and I think if, if you accept that as your own role, right, as one past part of the piece, there are people who preserve and that's also important, but there are also people who need to challenge and, and to not give up on it. And of course you will face some rejection and, and judgment that you, that you don't want to identify with. Nobody wants to be called unethical, especially not uh, as, a, as a doctor. Yeah, that's a that's weighty, weighty phrase in medicine to, to yeah. be called unethical. Speaking of unlearning, I mean, like unlearning the the attachment to be like that, that sole identity of being a public sector doctor must have taken some, mm. a, a lot of strength. But you also mentioned that unlearning is very, very important. That, that's something that I haven't heard before. Can you explain that more and, you know, yeah. how you came to that conclusion? I mean, to be honest, it's actually something that, uh, at some point when I, when I started jumping into this world, I decided I want to upskill myself a little bit, uh, and Cambridge, uh, in the UK, um, they have a nice program in the business school, which is sort of a part-time entrepreneurship program, uh, kind of like an MBA, but for entrepreneurs and you can focus on healthcare as well. And when we got there on the very first day, everybody was really proud and happy and meeting all these people. And we had our inaugural lecture. And uh, one of the first things that the lecturer said was, uh, so warm welcome, you know, in British fashion, uh, charming everybody, you've been great. We didn't accept a lot of people, blah, 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 blah. And we also understand that you come here to learn a lot of new things, which is also uh, what we're here for and we would gladly do. And then they said, however, we need to alert you to the fact that your, your success as an entrepreneur is most likely going to hinge on your ability to unlearn. Because, um, many of the things that made you so successful that we want to accept you here are also going to be, uh, habits and thought patterns and, and so on that will prevent you from becoming successful in what you aspire to do now. Uh, so the problem with what you need to unlearn is that it's much more difficult to teach that. Uh, there is no recipe. We can nudge you. We can make you think about things, but that's for you to find out. And, um, and it's very true. And, and I keep learning that and I keep needing to unlearn and, and try I constantly hunt for the things I need to unlearn. It, it's, it's as in many things in life, but we always think about what can we add? What can we add? Right. Do more of this, do more of this, but what can we subtract, uh, or subtract is, is an equally important question, I believe. How would you more clearly phrase what you need to unlearn, um, in yeah. terms of medicine, what you need to learn when it mm -hmm. comes to adapting to the digital space? Uh, many things, but just to give you like some, some concrete, uh, thoughts on this. Um, one thing is normally as a doctor, you are not, uh, in charge of generating demand for your place. So you are in the emergency room and then somebody comes in because they have a problem because they've been brought in by ambulance. Uh, we had a discussion with our hospital management where they sometimes that somebody came to us and said, oh, uh, we're not having enough patients this day. You need to bring in more patients. And we all looked at each other and we said, so what do we do? We, we I don't know, we beat up people on the street and we pull, oh, what, what is the, should we carve into people's faces on our way home? I don't know. I don't know. What, what's the question there? Um, but it's not something we're used to, right? Uh, there's external demand. If you're an entrepreneur, there is a void. There is nothing. And you have to actually understand, okay, what, how do I create work for myself? First, uh, firstly, and then secondly, how do I prioritize it? And what do I decide to ignore out of the things that I think are worth doing and how do I find out very quickly if it's still worth doing it, right? So it, it's, it's the opposite where you have to create something out of nothing. And the other one is you have to deal with things as they come. The other part of it is that uh, as doctors often we're really good at, you can just throw anything at, at a doctor and they will deal with it, right? Um, but they're not so good at uh, necessarily planning ahead or at questioning the way they do things. 
So in, if, if you go on a, in a typical office of a doctor or an emergency room and you look at how the, the things are sorted in the table where, you know, you have all of the, the, the items in it, the syringes and operating tape. What the, no, the, the stuff in the emergency room with, you know, the needles, the scalpel blades, and you can pull them out. Emergency drawers. room. Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> so let's say if, if somebody looks at the drawers, is the stuff that's needed the most, is that always on the top drawer or not? Like the doctors don't wonder about these things, right? You, hmm. You're never thinking about how can I optimize my processes? How can I, um, you know, do more than just this one-on-one -on -one thing? And doctors often only think, how do I optimize the resources for this one patient? How do I do the best for my patient? They don't think about the opportunity cost that they create by overly focusing on one patient and not on the other, or, you know, by creating a lot of costs that might be useful in the kindergarten, whatever, right? So you, you don't have this, this thinking beyond what's immediately in front of you. Another thing uh, I think that, that I often see with doctors is where it's this first do no harm principle, which is great. Uh, and we have to be very risk averse in medicine. Um, but in, in a startup space, you can afford to make mistakes often. Uh, so there's this mantra of, you know, fail fast, fail early, fail often, fail forward, which to a doctor sounds like kill fast, kill early, kill often. Um, and, and, and we're afraid of that, right? But we need to get better at uh, allowing mistakes where it's safe to make mistakes. And we need yeah. to understand where it's, where it's not okay to make the mistakes, but we need to be more differentiated there. And what I often see with doctors is that they always come up with this, there's this one exception why this whole thing doesn't work. So you might say, I have this new app. And then they would tell you, oh yeah, but the other day I had a patient, they uh, had no arms. Uh, and then you say, great, but then they can use voice activation. Yeah, but what if, you know, they can't speak? And, and then, so you, you always have this, uh, destroying ideas by, by seeing too many problems and too many complexities rather than saying, okay, let's, let, I don't know, let's, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens, right? It's, I don't mean to generalize. I'm sure a lot of people who listen to your uh, podcast, of course, are, uh, have a different mindset, but I can also imagine that many of them have, have witnessed something similar when they engage with, uh, with their colleagues. Yeah. I think that was a great general summary overall, but I guess when we talked offline, you also mentioned the, the importance of in, in your work right now. Uh, psychological safety, bringing up clashing ideas. And I think that as I mm. talk to people who are involved in healthcare improvement here as well, that's actually becoming more popular in North America health, North American healthcare circles as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how you apply that to the, the circumstances in which you work right now? So I think one is always being aware of one's own effect on others. So especially if you're a doctor, I feel like often people tend to give you much more authority than you maybe deserve because, you know, you have the certain societal role, but especially then if you talk about topics related to medicine, then, then your word automatically overrules uh, that of others. And I, I see sometimes that doctors don't understand how to differentiate, you know, opinion versus facts. So, you know, we had a, we had a doctor who strongly opposed that we would get, uh, give out Amazon vouchers for uh, patients who would... Uh, uh, agree that we interviewed him. And the only reason was, is because he felt Amazon was unethical again. Right. And then I had to educate him that this is not his place to give my personal ethical statements into a development of a product or whatever. Um, and that he has to separate that from the, the factual thing. So of course he can state his own concerns, but he can't do it with the same level of authority as if he talks about, uh, I don't know, you can't cut the aortha, right? That, that's a, that, that's where he can be very clear, but he can't be very clear on things where it's more of an opinion open to debate. So it's, it's, this is the first thing, like, um, stepping back, knowing one's own, uh, effects on others and sometimes rather shutting up a bit more than you otherwise would, asking a bit more, voicing a bit more doubts, even of own convictions. What I like to do a lot is, is really sort of getting other people's opinions first. And still, you know, because I'm a partner and the, the CMO, um, I have some of my younger team members, they say, I hope it's okay if I tell you this, but I don't like how we blah, blah, blah. And then I, I spend most of the time actually not talking about the recommendation first, but about the fact that she feels like it might not be okay. And yeah. you know, I keep telling her, you know, I, I wish we get to the point where you don't feel uncomfortable telling me this because otherwise I have a problem because in my world, people will stop telling me things. And, and then I get biased. Um, so I, but it's a, it's constant work of doing that. And it's especially difficult if you work in very interdisciplinary teams, um, where people, you know, come with different ways of communicating, of reasoning and so on. So, 
I thought it's important to spend a lot of time understanding and discussing with people how they think, how much time they need to digest information in order to enter a decision. I think that's, that's very important. And showing vulnerability, uh, which is not something I'm seeing that often in the healthcare. That, that's fascinating. It seems like you're adopting, as a segue, the, the, the role of a leader, a healthcare leader. So flashing back to that point in the conversation where you mentioned mm -hmm. healthcare archetypes, I've always had a, uh, a guilty obsession with Myers-Briggs archetypes because people like categories themselves and I, I tend to do that as well. But can you describe each of those archetypes more in depth? Um, and I, I guess some examples of, I guess, people who you've encountered um, where, where they've found success in each of those roles. Yes. So, um, maybe, uh, I, I could, um, I could, uh, I could maybe also share an article that, I, that I've written, um, sure. which we published and it's in English actually. Um, so we, first of all, we, we, we talk a lot about this concept of hybrids. So it's, it's medical doctor plus X, right? You have to have this, this grounded experience. Um, and then this X could be, uh, let's say expertise in analytics, could be in digital innovation, could be business acumen or, or whatever else it is. And, and then you find job titles, which are not really protected yet or not, you know, not, not clearly defined, but do you have anything from the chief medical officer to the medical innovation lead, venture developers, digital health product manager, uh, you have content developers. And then, as I said, you have these healthcare investors and so on. So there's, it, it's, it's still vague and you can always be more than one of these archetypes, right? Uh, yeah. then it might just be a, a combination of things, right? Um, but what we argue is, uh, that there's the builder, a uh, builder clinician, <laughs> if you want, uh, who works essentially at the intersection of evidence-based healthcare and health engineering. Engineering can be hardware, can be digital, can be machine learning, whatever it is. Um, but the problem that these engineers often have is that even, I mean, they can be very brilliant and I work with some brilliant ones who are really deep into the healthcare space, but they often don't know how to really make something fit. So for example, if, if we look at this, um, this tool that we're building, um, we can detect a lot of biomarkers and there are some biomarkers that are for COVID. And then we thought, okay, let's do a COVID detection device. Um, but then my thinking was if I'm a doctor and I let somebody blow into it, I would actually like to know if it's not COVID, but the person still has, you know, sweating and coughing and so on. What could it be? Maybe it's, I don't know, bacterial. And we went to talk to some doctors and interviewed them. And that's sort of my role as the, the UX guy or the user researcher in the medical context. And I found out that doctors don't care so much about whether it's bacterial or viral, because they say it takes me a blood test and I can instantly see it. I look at the, this, the, the CRP and I, I look at, um, propulsatonin, uh, and I see the x-ray and I'm, it's, it's very clear to me, uh, when it's a, an actual pneumonia. So I, that doesn't add too much value. It's nice stuff, but it doesn't add value. Mm -hmm. However, if you could tell me if it is viral, uh, whether it's COVID or influenza or RSV, that would change things for me. So then, you know, I can take that back to the, to the engineers and say, uh, guys, can we please focus on these biomarkers because they serve more than the others. Yada, yada. And, and that then becomes quite, uh, quite helpful. So that's why, you know, being at this intersection or I was working with engineers where we had a big data set of, uh, I don't know, 150,000 patients. And, um, we were looking at the lab values and then we saw that leukocytes sometimes were spelled leukocytes. Sometimes they were spelled LEU. Sometimes they were just L. Then there was LEUC or LEUK, not a German version, different synonyms for the same. And then for each of the synonyms, you had different reference ranges. And sometimes they were just minimally, uh, you know, 0.1 left shifted or something like that. That was okay. Sometimes it was completely different. Turns out, okay, this was liquor size and so on. There is no machine learning engineer or mathematician or very few probably who will feel comfortable, uh, analyzing these data sets and making sense of what's going on. <laughs> but if you have a medical training and if you understand, okay, this has been taken first, then they took this other test. That's because there they saw something they suspected this. And, and you can question the data and then turn that into algorithms. Um, it's a different ball game. And, and so that would be the builder case. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, I know that we're short on time, so I'll ask specifically yeah. about one other archetype and that's specifically yeah. the healer. You, you talked a little bit about that. They, they work in the space of healthcare themselves. They heal people still, but they have fluency, um, in the digital world. <laughs> what specifically do you mean by that? And 
I guess, what do they offer to the advancement of adoption of digital technologies in healthcare? Why are they important? Yeah, yeah. So the healer would be the archetype that's closest to what people think of today when they hear the word physician, right? Uh, they are the in the role that's closest to the patient. And probably even, you know, no matter how much things are going to change now in the next decade or so, they are they're still going to be the majority of the doctors working uh, in on the front lines of healthcare with patients, I think. But uh, there are some things that are changing. So one is we're moving a lot from analog to virtual or from manual to automated care. Uh, and you need people who are able to navigate that. The, the simplest thing would be uh, being really comfortable using telemedicine. But telemedicine is not just Zoom. Uh, it can mean also, you know, uh, having remote patient monitoring tools and doing virtual visits, uh, prescribing things, doing follow-ups, measuring outcomes, and so on and so on. So there, there's there's a lot of how the interface to the patient changes. That would be the the, the front end in a way. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, how do you, how do you make use of data? Um, in, at Stanford, uh, they talk a lot about the rise of the data-driven physician. Mm -hmm. And uh, if at some point we have big databases with a lot of patients, and now you have a patient who has some rare disease X, um, you can of course go to PubMed and you can of course, you know, try to find similar cases. Maybe you find and have another colleague you can talk to. Um, but that's the old way of doing things. And probably in the future, you will be able to, um, to, to, to parse through large, large amounts of data, including, you know, genetic data, ambient uh, technologies, wearables, uh, electronic health records, wh whatever you have, and then interrogate that data to find, uh, I don't know, let's say eight or 10 other people with the same rare disease and to figure out, okay, what worked for them? What have these people received? You might not have never seen them. You might not know the colleagues who treated them, but you will be able to, to derive some insights that will help you to form a hypothesis on how you can heal uh, this new patient in front of you like you previously wouldn't be able to. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, requires, um, that requires more of this. And then finally, um, our treatments are expanding. We're not doing only knives and pills and so on. Uh, but we're also doing apps these days, right? So digital therapeutics is a, is a thing. Um, how do you find out if you prescribe app A or B? How do you see if it's effective? How do you know who it might be working better for? At the moment, the approach is, well, I'm giving it to 10 patients and then I hear their feedback and then the next guy benefits from the feedback I'm getting. But that's not how medicine should be. That's intuitive medicine. We want to be precise, right? We want to be mm -hmm. evidence-based. So I think that's that's something that, that will also be more in there. That's fascinating. It's like the, the the modern or futuristic equivalent of someone who practices evidence-based medicine. They they know mm. what solutions there are out there and they're comfortable mm. working with data to best serve the patient, patients at hand. And I think that's incredibly noble, being able to move with the times yeah. that we can offer the best available for the patients at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, you, you, you talked a lot about data there and it seems like a lot of your work after medicine has been in working mm -hmm. with data-driven startups. Um, why, why specifically that pivot? Well, whatever I myself, I like questions, by the way. It's, you're, you're brilliant at this. Um, uh, we should have a separate conversation about that. I think there's there are a lot of talents that you, I mean, that, that you shouldn't leave under the table. I mean, you're not because you're doing this, but I think you can do more of it. Where, where was I? Um, why data? So I, it's of course, because I mean, most of the startups want to do something with data. There's a big hype around it. Uh, it increases your valuations. If you say we're data driven, there are, by the way, a lot of startups that claim to be uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence, and it's just logistic regressions. If, if you look under the hood, so th there's a big hype. Um, and I wouldn't even underscore with the things that I'm doing that the biggest thing is data, right? So if I look at this, the thing I'm doing with the Russians, many people say, oh, so you're doing big data. I say, well, maybe kind of. But what it's really about, what the innovation is, that is we're, we're making biomarkers visible that were invisible before, and we're using machine learning to interpret them. So yeah, we're you know, generating new data sources, fair enough. Um, but I wouldn't say that this is the only or this is the key thing, only one component, right? Um, with the other things I'm doing is the beauty about, of digital is it doesn't only make things more efficient because you don't have to act for facts or type up like a report into your computer and, and all of that. The beauty is that it can really change how we go about doing things. And one thing is, uh, and that's, that's what I'm truly passionate about is the change from a reactive healthcare system to a proactive healthcare system. Reactive means 
person uh, suddenly realizes uh, the half of their face is, is, is not movable and their left arm is down or whatever, and they have a stroke, and then they go to the uh, emergency department, and then the, everybody says, oh, time is brain, time is brain. But we shouldn't be at that point. Now we have suddenly we have a watch that can detect if you have arrhythmia and warn you many, many, many years before you would even get a stroke because of your arrhythmia. So that's proactive, right? Um, or people were thinking maybe we can hear uh, changes in the voice with COVID patients before they realize that they're infected. So that, that's the mindset um, where I think it's really worthwhile working on it. But to be proactive, it's not enough to just know that something happens. You, you can't just have the sensing, you also need to have the acting, just like with your reflexes and the muscles. And so it's equally important to have people who work on I don't know, the, the re-engineering of cells on new therapeutics, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I find it also very interesting. I ended up more on the sensing space, uh, which to be frank is also a matter of opportunity. Just people approached me for it. And it, it's always important to have the right people to work with, right? That, I mean, that's also, maybe that's the key answer to your question rather than me rambling around, but. One thing in entrepreneurship is often uh, what the, what's the bird you have in your hand, right? So start from where you are. Yeah. Uh, of course, you have a thousand ideas of where, how the world should look, um, but it starts with the people you have around you, the people who, it starts with who you know, what you know, and, and what is within your reach in the mm -hmm. end of the day, mm -hmm. and with who you are, and then iterate from there. That's, I, I think that's perhaps the, the, the most precise way to put it, but I mean, I think a lot of your a lot of your work has been shaped around what tools, again, as you said, are available to you and what's become popular with the times using the immense amount of data that we now have that we didn't have before mm -hmm. to improve what you view as the problems that we face as a healthcare system, make sure that healthcare is yeah. proactive instead of reactive, et cetera, et cetera. I, I recognize that we're running short on time. So there's there's one thing that I always ask our guests is for you mm -hmm. to plug our pluggables. And uh, you, you, you mentioned that you have a couple social media profiles that you want to push out. Tell me about them. Oh, cheers. So uh, I have things planned for the, uh, for the U.S. market. So you mentioned the card game. We're working on it. And, and sorry, U.S. and Canada. We exist. Uh, we exist. Thank you. You exist. Yeah. We exist. It's, 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 it's actually Canada is very prominent over here in terms of uh, appearing really? in the news and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you have a lot of uh, universities that are well known here too and so on. Uh, I even spent, uh, I think it was a week uh, close to Calgary and, and some lakes um, fishing and... It's gorgeous there. Yeah, on so I have, a, I have a very clear, very positive view of uh, <laughs> Canada and I miss it. Um, good save, good save. Uh, yeah, no, honestly. Uh, but where was I? Um, Pluggables. So yeah, I, I mean, exactly. So I, I wish I could send you the, the stuff for the, uh, for the products that are coming out and, and get some feedback on that. Uh, but I would also love to stay in touch. Uh, one is my LinkedIn. It's uh, LinkedIn and the slash the handle is Sven Jungman. My first name, last name spelled together. And my Twitter handle, I think, is <laughs> Youngman, then uh, a lower dash Sven. How do you spell uh, young one? I think that's the important thing um, to hear. Actually, it's S, then the lower dash, and then J-U-N-G-M-A-N-N, -N, uh, which is the German for young man, really. Well, you certainly look like a young man. Fairly <laughs> past your 20s. Um, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stop here. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time. Bye-bye.